It's Pentecost. Isn't that great? Um, so, this week um, we have been praying along with people all around the world. I don't know if any of you have had an opportunity to look at that website, but um, there, there's a map and they've got little lights where everybody's praying, and there's literally people who have been praying since Ascension until today and are praying today all over the world. So it's very exciting. And the name of that initiative, which is set up by the Archbishops of Canterbury and York, is Thy Kingdom Come. Uh, obviously, Thy Kingdom Come comes from the Lord's Prayer. And it is uh, a prayer that to God, our heavenly King, to reestablish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, to bring his righteous rule and his divine presence to earth as he, as he did right at the start of creation. So can you imagine what a world would be like if every single person loved their neighbor and shared everything they had with them? If there was no more war, no more hatred, no more bitterness, no more starvation, and no more tears. That's what we've been praying for, thy kingdom come. And the reason that the archbishops chose this specific time of the year, even though it is in the middle of half term, so none of you were here, is because it finishes with Pentecost. And Pentecost goes much of the way to answering that prayer. The story of the Bible as a whole is the story of God trying to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And Pentecost is the moment at which God's kingdom is birthed, not in a territory or a land, but in the hearts of believers. And it's the moment that the church itself is born. It's the moment that the law is written in our hearts. And it's the moment at which the internal transformation happens within us. It's the moment at which we receive the fruits and the gifts of the Spirit. And that it's the moment at which the commission that each one of us has as a believer to go out and extend the borders of God's kingdom becomes possible. So today when we celebrate Pentecost, we celebrate a wonderful answer to prayer that has been prayed by people over the centuries, the cry for the restoration of God's kingdom on earth. And this prayer is not a prayer that is far from God's heart because he has always intended that we should be able to enjoy his company in his kingdom. That's why he created Eden. The issue has always been that in order to be in God's presence, we need to be able to live under his rule. And that has proved rather problematic. So when God formed creation, it did include a slice of heaven a place where humanity could dwell with their maker and enjoy his company. Adam and Eve had the privilege of calling this place home. And Eden had within it anything they could possibly want, including God himself. As God's representatives on earth, Adam and Eve were commissioned to continue his order of creation and to extend the the borders of Eden until it covered the whole earth so that all people had access to their God. Unhappily, as we know, this was not to be. And in spite of being warned that it would bring death, they chose to eat an apple from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, and as a result, they were evicted. No longer in God's kingdom or in his presence. Life looked very different for the people of God. 
From that moment onwards, humanity has been aching for a return to their home. They have been praying, thy kingdom come. When God promised Abraham and his descendants a land filled with milk and honey, it looked as if that kingdom might be reestablished on earth. But that promise rested on the proviso that they obey the law. At Mount Sinai, God provided them with the Torah, which gave detailed instructions on the behavior necessary to fulfill their side of the covenant. And for a very short time under King Solomon, God's kingdom did actually look as if it was going to be reestablished on earth because God's presence filled the Jerusalem temple and Israel flourished. Their borders were gradually extended. But unfortunately, Israel, like Adam and Eve before her, was unable to live under God's rule. And as a result, God's presence left their temple and their land and his blessing left his people. But the prophets did foretell of the arrival of a Messiah who would establish a kingdom that would endure for eternity. So over 1,000 years later, Jesus began his ministry by announcing the kingdom of God is at hand. But the kingdom he was alluding to was not to be found in a building or a town, but in him. It was in him, not the Jerusalem temple, that God's presence could now be found, that the sick could be healed, the captives set free, and sinners forgiven. And God did not intend to extend the borders of his kingdom through war, but through love. So unlike the Pharisees and the temple rulers who avoided the outcasts of society for fear of contamination, Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, made a point of reaching out to them and demonstrated that rather than becoming solid by their sin, they were infected by his contagious holiness. Wherever he went, Jesus left a trail of transformed lives. And slowly but surely, God's kingdom started to grow. Then Jesus commissioned his disciples to join him in this task. And when they came back from their first venture, they rejoiced that even the demons submitted to them in Jesus' name. Everything looked very promising. That is, everything looked very promising until the moment Jesus announced he wasn't going to be with them for much longer. This was deeply problematic because it isn't just a matter of Jesus being their constant companion, their teacher and their advocate. He was also the one who directed their lives. He helped them to interpret the law and the prophets. And he structured their days, telling them where they should go when and what they should do when they got there. On the sea of life, he was both their captain, their map and their compass all in one. Leaving the future of mankind in a group of enthusiastic but flawed young men would surely end in failure, much as it had done before. Even though Jesus had interpreted the law for them, it's hard to see how they were able to succeed where others had failed, because the law only points out what thou shalt and what thou shalt not. It doesn't equip us for the task. And I know from my own personal experience that that was the case for me. I was raised in a church-going family, and we attended um, Sunday services religiously every Sunday. 
But somehow, in spite of this, I completely managed to misunderstand Christianity. I believed in a God, but he was a disapproving creator. I thought Jesus was a fairy tale. I'd heard about the Holy Ghost, but I didn't want to meet him. I believed that Christianity was a set of rules that had to be obeyed if one wanted to go to heaven. And as I understood it, if you followed the rules successfully, you were a good person and good people went to heaven. On the other hand, if you did not, you were a bad person and you were being sent to hell. Life for me seemed like a staircase running between heaven and hell. I started off midpoint on the staircase, and my job during this lifetime was to attempt to reach heaven by good behavior. Every time I did something good, I was rewarded with a step in the heavenly direction. But every time I did something that was a sin, I'd take a step towards hell. With this in mind, I tried very, very, very hard to be good. I used to pray earnestly to God every night before I went to sleep. I used to say sorry for the endless transgressions I'd managed to commit during the day. And I'd tell God that I'd try a lot harder the next day to be good. And I used to dread those prayer times. The only reason I reported in at all is that I saw God as my adjudicator. It was his job to decide how many steps I'd earned in which direction. And I thought if I pleaded hard enough, he might be more lenient. But the reason the process was so tortuous was that no matter how genuine my intentions were, which I can assure you they were, and how hard I tried, and I can assure you I tried, I could not be good. In fact, I felt that the more I tried to pull myself up by my bootstraps, the more bad-tempered, sulky, resentful, and judgmental I became. I knew which way I was traveling. By the time I was a teenager, I left church, and frankly, I didn't plan on coming back. History has shown time and time again that human beings are incapable of following God's rules in their own strength. Although the law is a blessing because it points out what God's idea of what is good and what is bad is, however, it is also a curse in that it is the law that reveals our sin. Without the law, there would be no knowledge of what good and evil was. It is the law that the enemy uses to accuse us, pointing at our shortcomings and calling, our, calling for us for death. And it is the law that condemns our inability to submit to it. When Jesus told the disciples he was going to be leaving them to their own devices, the future didn't look promising. However, in spite of appearances, he assured them that his leaving would be to their advantage, that he wouldn't leave them as orphans, but they would be provided with the power they needed to succeed in this venture where they had previous, others had previously failed, the power of the Holy Spirit. He commands them not to leave Jerusalem until, until they've received this blessing from the Father the blessing of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the very last thing Jesus says to his disciples before he ascends in front of their own eyes, his final reassurance of his promise and affirmation of their commission is, 
You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So, in obedience to Jesus' request, up to 120 followers, including the 12 apostles, some of Jesus' female disciples, his mother and his brothers, all go to Jerusalem and wait. By the time this passage takes place, 10 days have passed since Jesus has been taken from them. And since that moment, they have been praying fervently for this baptism in the Spirit. And by now, once again, Jerusalem is packed with pilgrims. That's why so many people were there when they came out afterwards. Because at this time, they were celebrating the Festival of Weeks. This is one of the three main Jewish festivals, and it marks two things. One, the occasion on, on which the wheat harvest comes in Israel. And two, it commemorates the anniversary of the day on which the Jewish people received the Torah, the law given to them by Moses on Mount Sinai. In the same way that it was no accident that Jesus walked into Jerusalem at Passover, it is no coincidence that Holy Spirit was given to us during the Festival of Weeks. There are many poignant parallels between these two events. For instance, 10 days after Moses went up the mountain to meet with God, the Torah was given. 10 days after Jesus was taken up the mountain to meet with God, the Holy Spirit was given. The law was given to a newly redeemed people. The Spirit was given to a newly redeemed people. 3,000 people died at Sinai when the law was given. And 3,000 people were saved at Pentecost. On both occasions, wind, fire, and voices were present. The Hebrew word kolot, translated as thunder, actually means voices or languages. When the Holy Spirit falls on those gathered in the upper room, it is a game changer. Nothing will ever be the same again for any believer. Before Pentecost, we couldn't enter God's kingdom unless we were without sin, and who can do that? But at Pentecost, the kingdom of God enters our hearts. Before Pentecost, the law was written on stone and was there to condemn us. But at Pentecost, the law was inscribed in our hearts to guide us. Before Pentecost, the Torah attempted to change people from the outside with a big stick. But at Pentecost, the Spirit began to change us from the inside. Before Pentecost, we were incapable of fulfilling the law. But at Pentecost, our transformation begins as we have the access to the fruits and the gifts of the Spirit. Before Pentecost, we were not a people. But at Pentecost, men and women from all nations became a people. Before Pentecost, the disciples appeared to have been a ragtag group of individuals all in competition with each other. But at Pentecost, when each one is adopted in God's family, they become brothers and sisters who love and support one another. The family of God's kingdom is born, the church. Before Pentecost, our eternal life was dependent on fulfilling the law but at Pentecost the Holy Spirit comes as a deposit guaranteeing our eternal salvation and our inheritance but Pentecost 
Before Pentecost, only those in the vicinity of Jesus knew what it would be like to walk with God. But since Pentecost, each of us is invited to have God as our constant companion. But this time, not only outside, but within. As a result of Pentecost, for believers, wherever we go, whatever we do, God is with us. If the enemy accuses us, God's spirit is present to advocate on our behalf and to assure us that the price of our sin has already been paid. If we're distressed, God is at hand to comfort us. If we need guidance, God is at hand to help us to lead our lives to the full, to structure our days and to give us direction. No wonder the disciples burst out of the building full of praise and wonder. From the moment they're baptized in the spirits, their lives are changed for good, and they will never be the same again. The frightened young men who ran away when Jesus was arrested or denied him during his trial are now boldly preaching the gospel in the very same streets of Jerusalem. And they're so full of the Holy Spirit that 3,000 people are added to their number that day. I have helped on over 30 Alpha courses over the years. And without exception, every single time people open up themselves up to the Spirit, I have seen their lives transformed. And the same holds true for me. Age 27, after watching a television program about Jackie Pullinger and being so impressed by the way she lived her life, I decided to give Christianity another chance. So I did Alpha for the first time at a church recommended by a friend. And I was absolutely astonished to discover that everything that I had learned about Christianity was wrong. What a waste of time. <laughs> what I most struggled to take hold of, though, was the fact that I didn't have to earn my way into heaven with my good deeds. Even though I could believe that Jesus could love and forgive other people, I simply couldn't believe it for myself. It wasn't until somebody prayed for me to be filled with the Spirit that the information went from my head down into my heart. We were all standing at the front of the church in the penguin position, and one of the team put their hand on my shoulder. I had a profound sense of God's peace, and I remember for the first time in my life believing that God loved me, and he was not disappointed in me. From an outsider's perspective, it wasn't a very dramatic experience. I don't think the person who was praying for me even know that, knew that anything was going on. I didn't shake, I didn't fall over, I didn't laugh, I didn't cry. But on the inside, from that moment onwards, I had had a total makeover. To my surprise, I found that from that moment on, many of the things that I had battled with pre previously, such as bitterness, unforgiveness, anger, and being judgmental, just seemed to fade away. This wasn't as a result of any great effort on my part, but it was due to the Spirit's presence in my life. And I also found that through no effort on my part, the Spirit had enabled me to fulfill my commission, the commission we all share, to extend the borders of God's kingdom. Because of the change in my sister saw in me, she decided she wanted to do the Alpha course too. She loved the course, but when the opportunity to be prayed for uh, came up, she was very reluctant. She was worried that uh, it would make her vulnerable to being manipulated. So I told her not to worry. I said if she'd 
uh, prefer to open herself to the spirit at home, she could do that because the spirit's everywhere. And she did. The very next day, once the children had been dropped off at school and her husband had gone off to work, she was alone in her kitchen. And she did the penguin thing. She closed her, she closed her eyes, as she'd learned by watching us do in the, uh, the weekend. She closed her eyes, held her hands out, and invited the spirit in. And indeed, he did come in. And the next thing she found is that she was on the floor. She had such an extraordinary experience of God that she came to faith right there and then. So I now have not just a sister in blood, but a sister in Christ. If I were to sum up what Pentecost means, there are so, so many things that it means. But I would say it is freedom from the law. If I look at those people uh, who ran people over or stabbed them in London or are blowing people up all, all around the world, it's religion. And religion breeds anger and death. It points the finger and tells us the many ways in which we are not fit for God's kingdom. But at Pentecost, God brought his Holy Spirit and his Holy Spirit brings love and love extends his kingdom.